G'day and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Michael J. Murray about his article, Clinical Practice Guidelines for Sustained Neuromuscular Blockade in the Adult Critically Ill Patient, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Murray is an intensivist and anesthesiology specialist at the Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Mike, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, You're very welcome, Todd. Looking forward to it. Before we begin, Mike, do you have any disclosures that you'd like to share with the audience? Nope. Mike, one of the key concerns that clinicians have always had about the use of uh, NMBAs is their apparent link to ICU-acquired weakness. Is that a justifiable concern? Oh, (laughs) uh, very much so. On a a podcast, we we could, you know, talk for more than an hour on just the association. And part of the association was related to the different drugs that were being used. New England Journal article from the the 1990s of Vacuronium identified several patients who had prolonged weakness following the administration of neuromuscular blockade. But then the metabolite of Vacuronium plays into that as well. And when you're administering it for several days, there's a tail end of uh, the 6-decetyl vecuronium that comes into play in producing this picture of prolonged neuromuscular blockade following the discontinuation of the drug. There are other factors that have been associated with it over the years, the use of corticosteroids, and then also um, studies, um, Brett Vandenberg's study from early 2000s in um, Belgium where they noted that patients who were hyperglycemic had a higher incidence of prolonged neuromuscular blockade. And so from our perspective, we did not address that specifically other than recommending or suggesting that patients receive corticosteroids, that blood glucoses be maintained less than 180, that Patients who are receiving it have physiotherapy at the at the bedside to maintain some degree of muscle strength, and that's the best we could do with the recommendations because um, there is obviously an association, but then there's also other issues that are at play. Uh, you have critical illness neuropathy, critical illness myopathy, and anyone who's in an ICU for that long a period of time that they would require a neuromuscular blocker is going to be at risk for weakness. But we did what we could, and by using a train of four monitor, which we suggest that people use, you should be able to overall lower the dose and decrease the incidence. So that's, I guess, would be the fourth component of decreasing the side effects of prolonged weakness. And then as we do, as it came out of the PAD guidelines, a daily drug holiday, if you will, both not just with the sedatives, but with the neuromuscular blockers as well, so that you assess on a daily basis where the patient still requires a neuromuscular blocking agent to manage their critical illness. Mike, a couple of the recommendations refer to depth of paralysis monitoring. Can you tell me about these and what they're, why um, monitoring of depth of paralysis is important? There are Two reasons. One is that you don't want to over-paralyze, you will, the patient because there's evidence that the more neuromuscular blocker you use, the more side effects you use, i.e. prolonged neuromuscular blockade. And at the same time, if the neuromuscular blockade is not deep enough, the patient is at risk of self-injury, either by self-extubation, 
uh, discontinuation, pulling out intravascular lines, etc. By using a twitch monitor, you're more uh, able to keep the patient at a level that you think is comfortable, and the guidelines recommend a, using a train of four stimulation that you would have one or two twitches on the train of four. Zero, you're using too much neuromuscular blocking agent. If all four twitches are present, you're not using enough. So what are the recommendations for people using neuromuscular blockade in the ICU for a prolonged period of time? I, I presume a lot of the use of this is based on anesthesia practice, which is obviously quite different from the circumstance in ICU. Correct, but even in the in the operating room, it would be unusual to use a neuromuscular blocker for more than 12 hours. And when we were discussing these particular guidelines, they refer to patients who are going to be receiving neuromuscular blocking agents that would act longer than one or two hours. A single bolus of a medication like such as rocuronium or cystatricurium for intubation would comprise a group of patients for which these guidelines do not apply. This is for a patient who is going, these guidelines are for a patient who is going to be paralyzed or receive a neuromuscular blocking agent for more than several hours by continuous infusion, most commonly for anywhere from 24 to 48, 72 hours. The other side of the coin, of course, is the issue of awareness uh, under paralysis, um, with some uh, suggesting that the monitoring of cerebral function is required if people are on prolonged neuromuscular blocking agent infusions. What are the recommendations around that that the committee made? The committee made no recommendation uh, one way or another. There simply wasn't enough data on uses. Some of the monitors of the EEG, some of the, uh, such as Abyss monitor, but there are several others that could be potentially used. But there were no prospective randomized control trials that could guide the practice. And so the recommendation is that the patient prior to the administration of a neuromuscular blocker be deeply sedated and that the sedative and analgesic drugs be continued while the patient is on a neuromuscular blocker or receiving a neuromuscular blocker. The trouble with that is if the patient is sweating, if there's not good lead contact, people may be led into a false sense of security. And so in addition to using a train of four monitor, you also have to use clinical judgment because they're also one of the recommendations was a concern. You're talking about complications or side effects is self-extubation. You use a train of four monitor and there's no twitches. You assume the patient is paralyzed. You're not aware of the fact that the one electrode may not be firmly placed. And, you know, five minutes later, the nurse or the person at the bedside steps out of the room and the patient reaches up and pulls out the tube. So, you know, triggering the ventilator, any movement, um, muscle movement in the patient, along with the, the train of four monitor is important. In patients in whom you're using an NMBA for induction of hypothermia following a cardiac arrest, uh, because of the hypothermia, the Peripheral nerve monitoring isn't ideal if you're cooling to 33 or 34 degrees, you get a delay in nerve conduction. So in the recommendations that we made, it was a suggestion or good clinical practice that the patient be deeply sedated, i.e. Ramsey score of less, four or less, uh, before the institution of neuromuscular blockers. And again, the same sort of a thing during uh, the monitoring uh, every 20, during 24-hour epochs of uh, 
monitoring or administering the neuromuscular blocker that the providers at the bedside are sensitive to changes in heart rate, uh, blood pressure, or anything that might suggest that the patient is more awake or more aware of their surroundings. We were unable, the task force was unable to find any reports that over the last 20 years that we've had these guidelines that the induction of deep sedation prior to the administration of a neuromuscular blocker or an MBA, and then the continuation of that same dose of sedative and analgesic was insufficient, i.e., that patients complained of being aware when the neuromuscular blocker was discontinued. So we felt fairly comfortable in terms of the best practice statement that if the patient is deeply sedated prior to the administration of an NMBA, that that should be adequate. Mike, let's talk about the uh, the indications for neuromuscular blockers in the ICU. The first um, that you addressed in the guidelines is uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. What does the evidence say about the use of neuromuscular blockers in this circumstance? Well, those are, those are from the three uh, French studies and uh, patients who received neuromuscular blockers uh, in the experimental group compared to the control group had better outcomes. And that was a uh, suggest, and for the reasons I mentioned earlier, not a strong recommendation. The reason that they have better outcome, there are many uh, suggestions, but in the studies that were done, they didn't look at plateau pressure versus tidal volumes in, in terms of identifying which factor was most important. The group was of the opinion that the neuromuscular blockers most likely, because the patient isn't coughing or bucking on the ventilator, over time probably has a lower plateau pressure, but we couldn't identify that in the three studies that we cited to identify the reason that, that there's an improvement, but that was the, I guess you would call the expert opinion of the, the group of um, 18 of us. Is there a cohort in within that broader group of ARDS that would likely benefit more than the others? We weren't able to identify that. And in the studies out of France, they didn't suggest if patients with systemic disease versus local disease, if the older patients versus younger patients had benefit. They they took all comers across the, uh, across the board. And, you know, what the literature, we know that surgical patients tend to have a better outcome than medical patients, younger patients better than older patients. But within the group, we couldn't say that there was more benefit in one group or the other. The only group in which we were somewhat reluctant to make recommendations because there are no studies in pregnant patients, we stated that the, the group could recommend either for or against, but an in individual practice, if you had a pregnant patient with ARDS, the belief amongst the group is that that patient should probably receive a neuromuscular blocker, kind of a good clinical practice. We didn't have any evidence, though, to support that recommendation, so that's why it's it's an either for nor against the practice. Another group where they're commonly used is in the severe refractory asthmatic patient who's difficult to ventilate and becoming unstable as a result. Uh, is there any evidence that they're useful in this group? All right. I'm looking. I knew that was coming up next. That was a definite topic that we addressed, and the recommendation from the group is that, and I'm going to ask you this quote to you, that among patients with status asthmaticus who are intubated mechanically ventilated, we suggest against the routine administration. But it's a weak recommendation. There's very low quality of evidence. Um, 
I think a lot of ICU, a lot of intensivists would use a neuromuscular blocker in the extreme cases, but we just we um, couldn't find any evidence to support it, and there was some weak recommendations against it. So it was, we suggested against the routine administration. Now there, there may be individual patients who would be candidates because their airway pressures are so high, but finding a prospective randomized control trial to assess that, not possible. And do you think the recommendations against, are against its use are largely based on the higher potential risk of complications within that group? That is correct. Another area where they've been used, of course, is in refractory intracranial hypertension. Is there any evidence to support their use there or in the intubation of patients with severe traumatic brain injury? And, and the same thing as before, we made no recommendation as to whether it was beneficial or harmful. I mean, if you look at the data, not, not just for neuromuscular blockers, but uh, across the board, the international studies that have been done, low-income countries versus high-income countries, such as Australia and the United States, we don't have any better outcomes than low-income countries uh, without naming any, but in, in the studies that, that have been published, couldn't say that there was any one practice that made things better. Obviously, there are some things you could do that could make it worse, whether it be hyperglycemia, hyperthermia, hypercapnia, if you will. But neuromuscular blockers per se were not found to be of, of benefit. There might be a rare person, person who is agitated, who you can't adequately control with sedation, who might benefit. But again, no prospective randomized controlled trials that would demonstrate that they should be used if they shouldn't be used. So within your institution, maybe best clinical practice might be to to do it. And we and we are aware of institutions. There were certainly members of the task force who used neuromuscular blockers routinely, but that was their professional opinion. But we just couldn't find any data for it. And likewise, when assessing intravascular volume status, some people want some individuals, some ICUs, paralyze the patient to assess fluid responsiveness to decrease the possibility of valsalva or, uh, you know, large uh, inspiratory pressures or positive pressure ventilation that might have an effect on intravascular volume. But again, we couldn't find any studies that they should be used routinely to assess patients in that circumstance. Uh, neuromuscular blocking agents have been uh, incorporated into protocols for therapeutic hypothermia quite commonly in recent years as well. Yeah, should they be? Again, no evidence one way or another, and so therefore the recommendation that we made is that we made no recommendation. There are a lot of practices that do it. Our feeling is that if you have a patient who is undergoing therapeutic hypothermia, and even that, you know, is is changing. Uh, originally, 34 degrees last year. Studies recommendations came out 36 degrees. Probably more important to avoid hyperthermia. But if you have a patient who is shivering, it makes sense to use a neuromuscular blocker. I know in ICUs uh, where I practice, we use them on a routine basis if the patient is shivering, but not for routine use and. Again, no prospective randomized trials of uh, NMBAs in patients who are undergoing um, therapeutic hypothermia. Mike, one of the features of these recommendations is the focus on supportive care and uh, 
some of the nursing elements of patients undergoing NMBA therapy. Can you tell us about those recommendations? Yeah, and that's—I think that was one of the one of the areas where we changed this year. We had more nursing input and individual nurses who have published on the use of or the management of patients who are having NMBAs. And in fact, the only strong recommendation that we had is that it had to do with eye care. And, you know, that the eyes be appropriately treated with either a, some sort of a lubricant and then the eyes be taped. And that was the only strong recommendation we had. But other recommendations had to do with self-extubation. And, you know, in the United States, at least, even if they are paralyzed, you can't restrain them in any ways. And so we thought the most important point about self-extubation, again, based on a number of small case series, had to do with the nurse at the bedside was the most important factor in decreasing the incidence of self-extubation. And the more experienced the nurse, the lower the incident, um, the less time the nurse spends at the bedside. If the nurse has a one-to-three ratio, for example, taking care of three different patients, one of them are more on neuromuscular blockers, the other two not, then that patient is at higher risk. Other bedside concerns had to do with the physiotherapy, not necessarily a nursing issue, but to the extent that the nurses are involved in assisting in physiotherapy in the hopes that we are decreasing the incidence of prolonged neuromuscular blockade when the patient, when the neuromuscular blockers are stopped, we thought that would be of, uh, of benefit. And then other factors that came in to play in, in terms of the um, bedside issues that had to do with, you know, some unique populations and then how to manage the patient at the end of life. Mike, finally, what's in the research pipeline that you're expecting will shape the next version of these guidelines? That's interesting. I'm not sure there there is. Um, you know, Sugamidex has just been approved in the United States. It's been in use in Europe for some time. There may be a role in using Sugamidex in patients who are around uh, receiving prolonged neuromuscular blockade to assess once a neuromuscular blocking agent is discontinued. And the previous guidelines stated that the patient should have a return of muscle strength within 90 minutes, um, some evidence of uh, return. And since ICU physicians who don't have a background in anesthesia aren't familiar with the anticholinesterases such as neostigmine, this new medication, Sugamidex, which actually binds to the neuromuscular blocking agent, might be used to guide the clinicians at the bedside in terms of whether or not the weakness that they are seeing is due to any residual neuromuscular blockade, either from the neuromuscular blocking agent itself, delayed clearance in patients with renal or hepatic failure, but also if any of the metabolites of the neuromuscular blockers might be playing a role. And, um, the unfortunate thing with Sugamidex is that it is only of benefit with aminosteroidal compounds such as rocuronium, vecuronium, pancuronium, but it wouldn't be of any benefit in patients who are receiving a benzoisoquinolonium compound such as cisatricurium or atricurium. That's the only situation of which I am aware of. I suspect that there may be some studies also in the pipeline of you know, more definitive studies of the use of neuromuscular blocking agents in patients with ARDS. 
and potentially in patients with status asthmaticus and maybe traumatic brain injury, but I just don't see that coming. Mike, congratulations on shepherding the uh, development of these new guidelines, which are obviously important to all intensivists, uh, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Todd Fraser, MD is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.